So I think there's a strong argument um, that Dawkins seems to accept, he's really working through that in this quote here, from materialism against free will and moral responsibility, therefore, which you could, of course, flip around as an argument in the other direction. Himself, Dawkins says, he he can't live consistently with this conclusion. Um, He thinks it's it's the right conclusion, (laughs) but but he says he finds it very hard to to live consistently with that, Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's just how we're built, as it were, you know, kind of we've been uh, predetermined by our evolutionary history to believe that we have free will. Um, of course, he doesn't believe that we have free will, so sometime, somehow he's escaped that predetermination, but he says it at, a, at, a, at a, an emotional level, I, I can't square with this conclusion, but that's that what must be the case given my worldview. But it strikes me to ask this question. If everything about a person is governed by the laws of physics, um, surely blaming them for their, say, intellectual failings, um, such as, I don't know, having blind faith, let's take that as a prime intellectual failing of interest in new atheists. Surely blaming people for their intellectual failings makes about as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. Um... Because in neither case is there any moral responsibility possible since there's no free will. Um, How could anyone, for example Christians, be responsible or blameworthy for for not living up to our intellectual obligations to only have proper evidence-based belief and so on if we aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? And it seems to me the obvious answer to this question is that they can't, and that this is another point of self-contradiction in what guys like uh, Dawkins are saying. They're saying, on the one hand, you know, um, religion is evil because it's all about blind faith and rejecting evidence and proper rational belief, and that's bad for people in society, and come to us and defend rationality and so on, and um, you religious people need to realise that blind faith is bad and you shouldn't do that and you ought to live up to your intellectual responsibilities, and by the way, nobody has any responsibilities because none of you are free. Um, it seems to me you're taking away with one hand what you are assuming when you're making the critic with the other. Um, indeed, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview like the New Atheist view of things that denies any reality to any intellectual obligations? How can they say, you know, you surely are obligated, given the power of our reasons, to, to come and join us? and see that, yes, you really ought to be rational and come and defend reason along with us new atheists. Um, and by the way, you don't have any obligations that you could possibly live up to because you're not free to live up to them. Huh? You know. So, uh, Lewis, in um, a very famous chapter in his book Miracles, that's still very uh, talked about uh, today, very relevant uh, today, talks about... Uh, use of the phrase, you know, I believe X because of Y. And he makes um, one way of making what's, what's called his anti-naturalism argument from reason is he says, well, think about what we mean by because there. You know, only a philosopher could get excited by thinking about the, the meaning of the word because, but let's think about the meaning of the word because. He says, well, it, we could mean the relation of physical cause and effect. 
Um, as in, uh, grandfather is ill today because, cause and effect, he ate the lobster yesterday. And the lobster obviously gone off, you know. Or he says we might mean a relation, different kind of relation, a relation of logical ground and consequence. Just as, you know, if Socrates is a man and if all men are mortal, then as a consequence it follows that Socrates is mortal. As in, grandfather must be ill because, ground consequent, he hasn't got up yet and we know that he's invariably an early riser when he is well. See, grandpa's failure to get out of bed doesn't cause us to conclude that he's ill. Rather, it's our grounds for making the logical inference or deduction that he is ill. So, once you've made that distinction, Lewis says, look, if what we think at the end of our reasoning about anything is to be a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question, why do you think this, must begin with the ground consequent sense of the term because. Well, I think this because, here's my reason. On the other hand, he points out, every event in nature, as, as a naturalist conceives of nature, must be connected with previous events in the cause and effect sense of because. Nature is just a whole lot of physical things interacting according to the laws of physics. And X happens because of Y, which happens because of the previous cause, and so on. But if naturalism is true, says Lewis, our acts of thinking are, of course, nothing but events in nature. Because that's all they could be. Therefore, the true answer on the assumption that naturalism is true to the question, why do you think this, must always begin with the cause and effect sense of the term because. Which must mean that, that we never have a reasoning leading to a valid conclusion that we're talking about. All we have really is bits of matter interacting according to cause and effect laws of physics. And that's a problem, says Lewis, because to be caused is not at all the same thing as being proved. Uh, wishful thinkings, prejudice, the delusions of madness are all caused, <laughs> but they're ungrounded. What if grandfather decides to exercise his free will and have a lion? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, this is why he said uh, it's our grounds for inferring uh, rather than, than, than I did slip in deducing, didn't I? But yes, um, yes, we can't absolutely guarantee. But you, you, that's to, that's to criticise the illustration that he's giving of, of, the, uh, of, of the distinction. Yeah, a good point. So if you want to, to, to syllogise it, and why not, um, you could put it like this. Um, you have the premise that, that if naturalism is true, that, that kind of reduces your understanding of what reasoning is to a closed, mechanistic, deterministic se sequence of causes and effects, because that's the nature of reality on that worldview. Um, if you think it's true that that reduction, that understanding of reason, just can't accommodate what reason actually is in order to be reasonable, 
Well, it follows that naturalism is self-contradictory as a worldview. And that is an argument, and various forms of that argument are very much discussed today in philosophy of religion. Um, world's leading philosopher of religion, a guy called Alvin Plantinga, uh, defends a version of this argument that he explicitly says uh, in his book where he came, first presented it, said this bears relation to C.S. Lewis's argument in Miracles, and here's a, a sort of modern way of thinking about it. There's a very good book by a Christian philosopher called Victor Rappert called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, in which he, um, a modern philosopher, defends a number of different versions of this kind of argument against naturalism as a worldview from thinking about what is it to be reasonable when we argue about things. In 2011, a philosopher called Paul Copan went uh, to ask a question of Richard Dawkins, who was on a book tour around America, and he basically asks him a version of this question about how, you know, how can you say, on the one hand, you say in River Out of Eden, you know, we're, we are just dancing to our DNA, that we don't have any free will, as he argued in that passage that I quoted. And on the other hand, you know, if you say that, how do you make a distinction between saying, you know, we're the atheists and we think there isn't a God and we're rational and there are theists who think there is a God and they're not? Um, How do you make a distinction between who's being reasonable and who's not being reasonable if all that's going on are physical things interacting according to the laws of physics? That exactly the same a-rational causes are at work in the brain of the atheist as in the brain of the theist. Um, Dawkins' response basically makes it absolutely clear that Dawkins has never heard of this problem, let alone thought about it. Um, which is interesting. So what I said about you know, they, they're not up on their reading in the subject that they want to talk about. Um, they're talking on this religious problem off the back of sort of half-remembered um, imbibed philosophical views from the 1930s um, through their PhD th- supervisors uh, at Oxford under a particular intellectual atmosphere that was dead and buried in philosophy by about 1950, 1965, um, etc. And they're not up on the discussion. Um, basically, Dawkins um, just changes the topic on Copan at the end here and uh, resorts to remarks about, well, science sends people to the moon and religion makes people fly planes into buildings. Just to, you know, which gets a huge round of applause from the audience who don't quite understand what Copan's asked and what's just gone on in terms of Dawkins completely misunderstanding and then dodging the issue. But it's interesting to see, for example, Sam Harris, neo atheist, saying um, in his book, The Moral Landscape, he, he says, Our logical, mathematical, physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. This is, this is a point that, that Alvin Plantinger makes in his argument. He says, If, you, if your explanation for human cognitive capacities is a, a naturalistic, just, just materialistic process of evolution, what natural selection is interested in is what has survival value, what works to get an organism to survive. That is not necessarily the same thing as having a true belief about reality. Actually, having false beliefs about reality could work. Or, why do you need to have any beliefs at all? You just need the body to move in the right way. Um, How do you get any link up between behaviour and 
subjective belief about things going on. Um, atheist Thomas Nagel, this is a fascinating, quite a slim book. He's an atheist philosopher of mind from America, um, but he's a, an, an anti-naturalistic Atheist, So he's one of those few atheists who has lots of deep questions that he asks that I would sympathise with against a, a materialistic worldview. And he says, um, he argues that evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities, our mental capacities, that undermines their reliability and in doing so undermines itself. And C.S. Lewis was arguing things very much like that back in the 1940s, so he's very contemporaneous in that sense. Nagel concedes in another book of his, The Last Word, he says, the reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of reasoning we employ when we, we have this insight into necessary truths of logic, for example. He says the basic methods of reasoning we employ are not merely human, not just this worldly, as it were, but belong to a more general category of mind. He thinks our reasoning capacities imply some sort of metaphysical truth to the world that's not capturable by a, by a materialistic understanding of what's going on when we reason. Um, but he's still an atheist, but we'll see. Maybe he'll go the way of Anthony Flew. Um, <laughs> we can see. Any quick, uh, or not so quick indeed, uh, questions or clarifications about that? Yes, sir. Sorry about this one. But you keep referring to the laws, physical laws and laws of physics. Mm. Which particular version of physical laws and laws? Because you sound as if you're being very Newtonian. Right, yeah. Okay. Good, this, yeah, good point. So... <laughs> It, it, that's a very hot topic, actually, within naturalism, because they often want to say, well, reality is the way that... Well, they don't exactly want to say the way that science understands it now, because they realise science is developing, and we have a dis slightly different views of things now than we did 10, 50, 100 years ago. So then you say, well, OK, reality is the way that, that a, a final, uh, finished science will understand it to be. Um, but, of course, we don't have a final finished science, and all we can talk about is in terms of the science that as we sort of have it now. So that's quite an interesting discussion amongst naturalists as to what they even mean by having a materialistic worldview. Um, but certainly, you can add in, um, going through to sort of um, a particular reading of quantum mechanics, you can throw in an element of genuine... Um, imprecision or ran randomness within the world um, that has sort of been added in on, on some views of science post a Newtonian sort of clockwork kind of universe view of things um, where you get a bit more vagueness at the, at the very, very small level of things. Um, but that doesn't seem to be any help in overcoming these problems about what's going on in rationality. Because um, you either say, okay, the, the, the rules of physics that, that, that matter, whatever that is, is obeying, to use that analogy, um, are not one-to-one -one deterministic rules. Maybe they're uh, rules that have to be phrased in terms of probabilities. You, know, you will probably find the atom here 
and it's more probable that you'll find it here than, than over here, but you might find it over here, you know, kind of that, that kind of thing. Um, but, again, how does that help you uh, uh, get any closer to um, the ground consequent relation of following a, lo- a logically necessary rule of inference, for example, when you're reasoning about something? If, you're, if your behavior, whether your behavior when you're thinking is a fully deterministic following a law of, of, of physics, or it's a sort of indeterministic, probabilistic, probabilistically described way of behaving, it's still not the same thing as following the, um, the rationally intuited um, process of, of uh, what Lewis called the, the ground and consequent relation. How do you bridge that gap between cause and effect, whether or not it's one-to-one or, or stochastic, and rational insight and, and ground consequent relations? Um, how do you bridge the gap from the organ's behaviour having, having to be such that it is not weeded out of the process of natural selection, at least, to having uh, a cognitive system that is more often than not giving you a reliable insight into the truth about reality, rather than just giving you a view of things that enables you to survive. And you can think of all sorts of thought experiments where you know, maybe believing things that are not true would be more conducive to your survival value than believing things that are true. And how do you even get from just matter being what your mind is to having beliefs? Plenty of things seem to thrive and survive without having beliefs. Um, Plantinga talks about, you know, the, the frog catching a fly. He says there must be some sort of physical system in the frog that, as it were, can detect the fly and aim its long tongue out in the right direction to successfully catch it. Um, so there must be a, a, a physical system that's, that's kind of... You, you have a sort of cause and effect, input, output, that is successful at survival by catching flies. But how do you go from that to saying anything about the, the frog having beliefs about flies... <laughs> you know, if it has if it has beliefs at all, you know, um, that just you don't have to work the resources given to you by the materialistic view to get to what we know from introspection in ourselves, at least, is going on when we reason about things. Well, so it relates to that there's the whole field of the study of consciousness and yeah. what it means to be conscious. Absolutely. It's quite interesting. I read a very good article um, from a neuroscientist who was an atheist, um, but but open to non material mm. explanations. The problem is we know a lot about the brain, we know mm. a lot about circuitry, we know which bits light up and which neurochemicals yeah. fire. But I still can't tell you at all what a thought is. No, right. And and how can Thomas Nagel particularly, you know, pushes this issue of how how 
How, how can physical things have this quality of being about something else? What kind of physical relation is it to have a thought that's about Paris? Okay. Um, uh, Raymond Tallis, who's an atheist uh, writer, wrote a book called The Aping of Mankind, pushes this very hard and says it, that, that idea goes completely contrary to the idea of the causal nexus in, in a materialistic worldview. You can have one thing caused by something else, but to have a thing being about the other thing. Um, and Lewis, it, it fascinatingly, writes about this in a in passage where he says, okay, the astronomer has beliefs about the star, you know, a million light years away or whatever, that are true about the star. But matter, a materialistic description of things, just, just doesn't seem to have the resources, to have this quality of aboutness, or what is it for a, a material thing to be true or false? <laughs> you know, you, you don't find that quality listed in many chemistry books or <laughs> physics textbooks or what you know. And this boson is true, or it's just not a materialistic understanding of reality. Is is not giving you the resources to explain what we we know is going on. So much so that Alex Rosenberg, who I quoted from in his book, An Atheist's Guide to Reality, says that the, that the idea that we have thoughts that, about thing, that are about things must be wrong. He says we don't have thoughts about anything because that's incompatible with, a, with materialism being true and he is so committed to a, a naturalistic material understanding of reality he says you do not have thoughts about anything. Of course, elsewhere in a book, book, he says things like, you know, I'm now thinking about this, that, and the other, and <laughs> it is undeniable that I'm thinking about it. Um, so he, he ties himself up in absolute knots over this issue, and it's one of the, one of the areas where um, the naturalistic worldview, I think, is currently under a sort of twin-pronged attack, particularly from, from issues in the philosophy of mind, still very much like these that Lewis was raising, and issues um, from origins areas of science, like Big Bang, cosmic fine-tuning, origin of life, etc., information within the structure of nature and how you explain that. Um, and these uh, sort of are putting a, a vice-like pressure on naturalism that you're beginning to see expressed by various atheist and agnostic writers like Thomas Nagel, uh, um, Raymond Tallis, um, Anthony Flew, etc. Yeah. How can they explain thoughts? How can they explain things like human creativity and thoughts? Yeah, it, very poorly, basically. Yeah, um, I can think of one passage in Richard Dawkins that that, that addresses that issue and something to do with you know cavemen drawing pictures of where the wildebeest were was useful in planning um, raiding parties for your survival and that's how art, art developed or something. You know. <laughs> it's just, it's just, a, it's just a unverifiable just so story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> ah. 
So you may have picked up by now that despite their constant moralising against the evils of religion and blind faith and so on, um, the scientism of new atheists leads them to reject the objective reality of moral values. Sam Harris is an exception to this. In his book, The Moral Landscape, he wants to defend the objectivity of, of moral values that we can know through science. But I've, I've shown he explicitly contradicts himself by having to make a philosophical assumption uh, in, in uh, metaphysics in order to do that. Um, but on the whole, new atheists are moral subjectivists. Because they say, you know, all that morality is, is this just sort of evolved code of, of socio-biological taboo feelings about things because of the way certain behaviours were useful or not useful to our survival. Um, but in order to, to dignify those, those feelings and, and sort of inbred ways of reacting to the world, you'd have to make the moral assumption that, say, human survival was a good thing. Uh, objectively speaking um, and of course they can't do that by going out unless they go outside of the the socio-biological process itself um, so Dawkins will say that, you know, the universe there's, there's at bottom no design, no purpose there's no evil, no good there's nothing but pitiless indifference it's just you know, the machine stochastically perhaps grinds on there's an exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas, for which the words true and false have no meaning, says Dawkins. Remember A.J. Eyre, anyone? <laughs> this, is, this is old line, logical positive, it's verificationism coming out here from, from Dawkins. Moral language doesn't have a meaning because it's not empirically verifiable. It's not about facts. It's about values, and they're not fa- the whole scientific thing coming out here. So he, you know, Dawkins will say things like, you know, Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men, or you know, having blind faith is not living up to your intellectual obligations, and that's evil. Um, but you just have to remember when he's saying things like that, of course, that he doesn't mean it. And he's told us that he doesn't mean it, explicitly. He says, you know, faith is an evil. But he also says, you know, there are no standards. There is no good or evil. The claims about how we ought to act are literally meaningless. Because on the one hand, we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion's an objectively bad thing. It encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations. That seems to be, seems to be on the one hand what he's saying. But he tells us on the other hand that that's not what he's saying because he says there are no objective moral values. So what is he, what is he saying? Well, is, he, is he contradicting himself and forgetting his viewpoint from moment to moment? Or is he saying... Um, you know, religion is a subjectively evil thing that I happen not to like. It's not objectively wrong. There's no fact of the matter about whether it's bad to be religious or whatever. But I don't like it. Um, and those seem to be his rather limited options for what he's actually saying. And on the one case it's self-contradiction and in the other case it's just a private expression of his personal opinion that I perfectly feel it rights to ignore. Um, for Lewis, 
as an atheist, evil was an objective reality. Um, Lewis's atheism was bolstered at a young age by the problem of evil. He had lived through a lot of suffering, lost his mother at a very early age to cancer. He had his, what is it, his 19th birthday in the trenches of the First World War. Um, his sergeant of his platoon was blown up next to him. Um, he was invalided out of the First World War with shrapnel wounds. Um, several years before I read Lucretius, the Roman poet, I felt the force of his argument, surely the strongest of all for atheism, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. There are things that are really evil that any God worthy of the name shouldn't allow. And therefore there's no God. But if naturalism is true, there's nothing beyond this world, as Lewis came to see, what standard are you invoking by which to judge this world? Where do you get an, an anchor point for an objective sense of ought and ought not? Um, if there's no straight line elsewhere, how do we discover that nature's line is crooked? Um, that doesn't fit with a, a naturalistic worldview again. And, of course, he famously then spanned this out into the kind of moral argument that he defends in the beginning of mere Christianity. Um, the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something that he recognises as infinitely valuable. How can you condemn reality without a vantage point from which to condemn it? Otherwise, all you're doing is just expressing <coughs> feelings that an amoral, unintentional, impersonal cosmos has just happened by chance to give you. <laughs> um, so... In the end, says, says Lewis, he realised his, his atheism was too simple, he said. I wanted to use evil as an argument against God. In a sense, you throw that at God and it kind of boomerangs back at you by asking awkward questions about, well, what is this good, bad thing that you think you're in contact with? How do you know that? Where do you get that from? What kind of worldview most comfortably gives a, a, a home for such a thing as evil as a reality maybe that's not a materialistic worldview that you're looking at there you know these kind of any questions on that little issue hmm
And then he says, like, um, I think I read someone say that, mm. but man has it's, yeah. it's the possibility to be an exception yeah. to what we're, we're free to transcend that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And he does say that, and you can you can quote him saying, you know, we're free, and you can quote him saying religion is evil, and it seems like he's saying there is such a thing as evil, therefore. But when you then read wider into what he says and what his worldview is, you can, you can see him, I think, fairly consistently working through from an assumption of naturalism that, there, well, there is no such thing as objective good and evil. That, that's a matter of, of fact, knowing facts about reality. That's not what he can mean by it. That we don't have libertarian free will that would give us more responsibility such that we're, we're genuinely blameworthy for our actions and therefore the justice system has to be about shaping people's behaviour but not about punishing them for doing the wrong thing that they're responsible for and so on. So um, he can at one level seem to be someone who's very hot on you know, that's right, that's wrong, religion is evil, we need to live up to our intellectual responsibilities, we're free to transcend the, the law of the jungle, etc., etc. But at a deeper level, and at his level of his worldview, you see him consist, trying to consistently work through a view that, that, that takes away all of the foundations that you'd need to justify that, that sense of moral outrage, of, of crusading against bad things, and of course they, you know, there are bad things in religion to crusade against and so on. It's just that the new atheism is not going to give you the foundations to fight against it. It, it constantly undermines itself, as you say, in all of those areas that I, I think you're right, that, that are particularly those that they try and use, use to, to distinguish themselves from the old or classical atheism. Um, and on the issue of, you know, just the truth issue, is it true that there's a God or not? Well, they're so mired in sort of 1930s verificationism and scientism and so on, so out of touch with the contemporary philosophy of religion discussion, um, that, you know, if you want a proper challenge to your belief in God, for heaven's sake, don't go and read The God Delusion. Let me recommend some books by some proper atheist philosophers, you know. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, and a great fear of the rise of Islam, mm. but they won't attack it directly. So yeah, like, that's not PC. Soft option, religion in general, mm. Christianity mm. in particular, um, but actually that's not their natural target. And, no. Um, they have, it is self-contradictory because it isn't a philosophical movement, it's actually a political movement. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's much, more, that's much more what it really is, what they're really interested in. If you, if you took their books and did an analysis of how much you know, verbiage do they devote to issues about is religion or belief in God true versus the amount of verbiage that they devote to the political, moral kind of dimensions, the social dimensions of, of the issue, I think you're undoubtedly right about that. Let's see if I can just uh, fit in a little bit about uh, Jesus before we go to lunch, because this is a bit lighter and a bit fun. Um, C.S. Lewis's famous quote from Mere Christianity, which in the context, it wasn't actually an argument for the deity of Jesus, although it, it expresses a tradition of argument for the deity of Jesus. He's really arguing against the view that 
Um, of course, Jesus was just a merely human good moral teacher. And says, so, you know, that's far too simplistic a view of Jesus. Unfortunately, it's the view of Jesus um, that some new atheists, uh, those who admit that he even existed, uh, get pushed to. Um, you know, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic or uh, a blasphemer, the devil, devil of hell. He, you know, the whole, given that Jesus claimed divinity, that claim is either true or false. If it's false, Jesus either sincerely believed the claim or he didn't sincerely believe the claim. If he did sincerely believe a false claim to be divine, then he's a loony, because you can't really imagine a bigger difference between your, your, your reality and your self-image. As Peter Kreeft argues, that's a pretty good measure of how sane you are. Um, if he issued this false claim to divinity, but he didn't believe it, then he's a lying, blaspheming con artist. Um, now, how do you live with those categories given everything else you think you know about Jesus? That's the question. You know, what other data do we have that we can rely upon, historically speaking? And how does that square with those different ways of understanding Jesus, given that he made those claims? So there's a, there's a number of uh, ancillary assumptions around this discussion. But it's fascinating to see how someone like Dawkins in particular handles even that discussion. Um, I'm going to flip past the um, scepticism about the sources and just look at how they, they handle that actual argument. So a journalist asked Dawkins about C.S. Lewis, and, and what springs to mind for Dawkins is C.S. Lewis's uh, argument about Jesus. And he says um, some of his arguments are just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. It didn't seem to occur to, to Lewis that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Now, this is a really interesting response here. Now, why doesn't Dawkins say, um, yeah, those are pretty, you know, those seem to be the categories, the possible explanations, and I know I think Jesus was a loony. Or I think Jesus was, was a liar, blasphemer. Why does he say, there's, there's more options than Lewis gives you. Um, Lewis is being underhanded here. There's, a, there's, a, there's another obvious possibility that Jesus was just sincerely mistaken about you know, filling the shoes of Yahweh, deserving your worship, praise, etc., um, being in control of angels, being the Lord of the Sabbath, etc., etc. Um, he was honestly mistaken. And he d- uses this in the God delusion as well as his response to this argument. I mean, after all... Plenty of people are honestly mistaken about things every day. You know, sometimes I think I've left the keys in my coat pocket and they're actually on the shelf. Um, sometimes first century Palestinian Jews went around putting themselves on God's judgment throne. Um, but they're just honestly mistaken about it. You know, not, not, not loony, not, not trying to deceive people, but just making an honest mistake. Like, really? Yeah. Um, that is... I, I've done this talk with a number of audiences, and that is the response I get. I get chortling. I get laughter. I get puzzled, bemused faces saying, does Dawkins really think that that is a plausible, more plausible alternative than the, the lunatic or liar categories, even? Um, 
that just seems that, that Stephen Davis, a Christian philosopher, it's not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. That just does seem quite awkward. I love Nicky Gumbel's uh, response to this. He says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God, but that Jesus was not deluded even though he thought he was God. (laughs) I think that pretty nails it for me, really. Um, Mike King says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But why, this, this is the point, why should Dawkins not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? It's clearly because that, that, that those categories sit very ill at ease with everything else that one might historically think we can know about Jesus. Um, indeed, Dawkins, interestingly enough, says in a recent interview, there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. So he recognises that there's a difficulty with just plumping for that category. Um, <laughs> so th- this just seems worse than either of these two. Dawkins himself realises there's no evidence for that one. Um, Dawkins doesn't think that Jesus was a deceiving, lying con artist either. He says he was a great moral teacher. <laughs> He's just a great human moral teacher. Um, he talks about the moral superiority of Jesus. Um, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount being way ahead of his time. Um, he, he wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus and was later delighted to be presented with a T-shirt bearing the legend. Jesus. Um, <laughs> charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness, praises Jesus' genuinely original and radical ethics. He was a good human moral teacher who just sincerely but falsely thought he was God but was not mad. Yes, okay. So, you know, it's tricksy. Uh, I wouldn't present the lunatic liar lord argument, as it's sometimes called, as a knockdown argument for the divinity of Jesus. And you can see I'm pointing out that it bears a number of historical assumptions that people would want to, to talk about. But it is something of a backhanded compliment to the strength of the argument when you see Dawkins flailing about trying to answer it by introducing patently uh, unuseful additional options when you see that Dawkins himself recognises that there's a tension between the evidence and the lunatic and the liar categories. And to the extent that one accepts the premise that Jesus, in some sense, claimed divinity or equality with God, and that the historical evidence is intention with the lunatic and the liar options, so to that extent one is is pushed towards more seriously considering the option that his claim was true. In the Understanding Jesus book, I present this argument as one of five ways, five arguments in a cumulative case for the Christian understanding of Jesus. Um, This argument on itself, depending on how sceptical you are when when you come to it, might not be enough to convince you of the Christian view of Jesus. But I think it ought to um, put a stone in your shoe, ought to make you intrigued by who this guy is, ought to make you think this is worth thinking about and investigating more. 
that this might be an argument that soaks up some of your scepticism about Jesus, as it were, and makes you take the Christian understanding of him more seriously. And if there are a number of other signposts that point in the same direction, then by the time you've worked your way through that cumulative case for Christ, uh, let's see where you are. That's the kind of approach I take in the Understanding uh, Jesus book. So, uh, yes, uh, Jesus was just honestly mistaken just seems like an even worse option than the two that Lewis uh, gives us. And uh, that might push you towards um, seeing actually how, how strong the inner logic of this argument is once you grant the historical premises that it's based upon, which is, of course, a, a separate uh, discussion. Which is uh, half past. We've got two minutes for any immediate questions. Unless you want all of them to ask the moment. Yeah, that's fine. Just a quick, if they mm. could go back to the. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm going to go back to the. Sorry. Are you good? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that if they, we go back to the thing that everything can be scientifically proved, mm. are they accepting historical evidence which cannot necessarily be proved? Uh, they would accept historical evidence in the case of the of the gospels and so on they're very very skeptical about that evidence they um, most of the new atheists are highly skeptical about whether jesus even existed they're that skeptical about jesus studies um, you know they are they are they express opinions that are very much on the fringe of new testament studies today whether you're quoting from you know atheist scholars who are members of the Jesus Seminar who are known for being quite sort of um, radically sceptical about things uh, and yet you know, they, those guys would accept a lot more historical information about Jesus than new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens would. Um, I didn't go through the little bit that I had a quote from Victor Stenger but I'm writing stuff at the moment about responding to new atheist attacks on the Gospels, and there's a, a passage from Victor Stenger. He makes sort of half, five, half a dozen historical claims about the historical Jesus that, if true, seem absolutely devastating to any rational belief in a historical Jesus. But all of his points in the space of a paragraph are demonstrably flat-out false. Um, they do not know that of which they talk in this area. <laughs> yeah. Eagleton was saying, like, with, Daw- with Dawkins, it's, it's like somebody's got a, a book on the, you know, somebody's got a royal society of birds. Yes. Like, ornithology. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, it's... In terms of what he's, in terms of the areas that he, he's, he's, he's moving into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, new, the new atheists take very seriously the kind of critique that, that Lewis himself wrestled with um, back in, in his day of um, James Fraser's The Golden Bow and the whole idea that the, 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 the Greco-Romans dying and rising gods and so on of the pagan world and maybe that Christianity was a sort of um, a nicking of ideas from other pagan mythologies. Um, which is, is a dead issue within contemporary <coughs> Jesus studies. Um, but that's a sort of, it was a live issue sort of, you know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> um, but dead now but the, that's where the new atheists are they, they are trapped in a sort of Bolt, uh, Boltman-esque uh, no quest period um, 
era of New Testament studies um, from about 1900 and something. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's at second hand, at second or third hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you do? How would you answer someone whose response to that was that in the Gospels mm. Jesus was simply misquoted? And that yeah. Jesus himself actually didn't say sure. that he was divine. It's just yeah. the, the gospel writers put it yeah. down. Yeah. So I, I would say, okay, now we're no longer talking about this argument. You're talking about whether or not this premise is true. Yeah. Um, and we need to go into the whole discussion about how we, how we know history reliably from the ancient world and what the evidence actually is and so on. Um, I'm saying, when, which, is you know, which, is a whole, which is a whole different <laughs> seminar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a chapter in my, my Jesus book I would refer them to. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. So, if you're going to now have lunch, uh, we'll eat in the refectory and be back up here promptly for half.